it's me. It was me. Here I am calling out the sound booth, and it was my fault. All right, so a few announcements this morning. Um, first one will be um, thank you so much for all your Operation Christmas Child boxes. I'm excited to see in heaven one day because that's the only place we'll really get to know how much of an impact that made. Um, number two, we have uh, Christmas Eve service coming up on, guess what, Christmas Eve. So it will be, uh, I can't remember what day of the week it is, but it's December 24th, and it'll be at 6.30 p.m., and um, if you're interested in, in reading or singing a song during that time, uh, please let me know. I'm getting ready to put that all together. Uh, the other announcement is a sale that's happening. Some of you might have seen it on Facebook, um, but there is a lady that um, serves in a mighty way at Parkland Chapel that asked if she could use our facility in our area to have a sale that she calls a blessed to be a blessing sale. And what it is, is it's essentially a sale, but it's goods that have been donated to her and her organization for nighttime snack in Farmington. It's kind of like our backpack impact. And what she'll do is she'll truck all her stuff in here this week after our service. She'll have a, a sale set up, and then people will be meeting her to drop stuff off. And then on, let me get this right, on Friday, which is Black Friday, she'll actually open the doors and have a sale. And so nothing has tags on it. Uh, there's all kinds of different items. There's toys. There's clothing. Uh, it's lightly used stuff. And what it is, is it's really an outreach opportunity. So for people that have needs, maybe they need to do a little shopping. They don't need to spend some moolah. They need to buy food instead. They can come in and get their Christmas shopping done. And for people that want to donate to the cause to meet the needs of the organization that does it, they can do that. But either way, it's a blessing uh, because most of us have more stuff than we actually need. And we're purging. So you can bring that stuff in. Um, she's already got a truckload of stuff. She's got storage sheds where she keeps it all, and then she'll bring it in. So if you have stuff you want to add to that, go for it. Um, but essentially, she'll be here Friday, and I think the slide is up there. Um, she'll be here Friday um, from noon to 7 p.m., and then she'll be here Saturday from 8 a.m. to noon, and it will be in this room. She'll have all the chairs moved, and so uh, we might even do that after service if anybody's interested in helping with that this morning, so... Um, anyway, just kind of a neat way that God's using our building. And also, the lady that's doing this is going to take any proceeds to go towards Backpack Impact here locally. And, um, and so if you have anybody that you know that needs or that has, you want to get them involved, uh, let them know they can come. And, and I just want to reemphasize that people don't have to pay anything for the clothing. They can take um, and be blessed um, because we're so blessed. And so all that to say... Turn with me to Genesis this morning in uh, chapter 15. Genesis 15. God's promise is sure, is the title of my message this morning. So as you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, I want to remind you that um, Abram is just a man. And he's just a man uh, who has a wife. At this point, he doesn't even have any children, and yet God has made promises to him to bless him, to make him a blessing. That's where that thought comes from, blessed to be a blessing. Uh, but then also God has promised that he's going to give him as many descendants 
as the stars in the sky, which I love that promise because just this morning I was reading about it and uh, the guy that I was reading about pointed out the fact that he um, makes this promise that he's going to make Abram's descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and yet Jesus Christ was prophesied to be the bright morning star. So out of the many stars is going to come one star from Abram's descendants to be the savior of the world. And I don't know about you, but that's quite the inheritance. That's quite the promise. And so it's one thing that God would tell him you're going to have many children. It's a whole nother deal to say out of those children is going to come the one and only savior of the world. And so as Abram is getting blessed here, whether you realize it or not, these blessings that Abram is receiving and being promised for future generations, the result of those promises have affected you and I's households and us individually in our salvation, whether we know it or not. Abram's promises, that the ones that God gave, God gave to him, that's our heritage. That's our beginning. That's where our hope started. And so all that to say... In Genesis 15 this morning, if you'll give me the next slide, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I think that the music is still playing on uh, Amazon Prime. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. You have to pause it on the computer. And saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So we start... It's still on. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So um, let me start over. So Genesis 15, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, every other person in the Bible that the word of the Lord comes to in a vision is called a what? A prophet. And we don't see this again until, um, I think, around Job. Uh, we see Job receive a word and a vision. And we see all these other prophets in the Old Testament. So Abram is a prophet. And yet, he, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. And the word of the Lord says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted this to Abram for him as righteousness. And so in verse 1 through 6, Abram is the current heavyweight champion. Now, if you remember in the previous chapter, he's just fought a pretty amazing battle and won, by the way. If you remember, the king of Babylon, or Shadar Laomer, he was in league with these other kings, these four kings total. And there were five kings that rebelled against him, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They went to battle, 
When they went to battle, they got taken. And then because of that, Abram's nephew Lot was taken into captivity. So Abram's personally involved. Abram gets uh, ready for battle. He gets his 318 trained servants. They go out to deliver Lot. And when they go to deliver Lot, they have to go against these five kings, four kings. And when they go against these four kings, they win. And they take all the spoils back home and they arrive back home. So we talked about that last week. But with that being the case, if you are a WWE wrestler, how many of you guys like wrestling? Okay, so nobody in here likes wrestling. This is not going to be the greatest reference. But in wrestling, if you are the winner, if you carry the big fat belt, what does your job become after you win the belt? you start to have to defend that title. You start to have to deal with every challenger that comes your way. If you're the heavyweight champion in boxing, every young kid that's awesome and an up-and-comer is coming for you because the only way for them to make a name for themselves is to beat you. You're the only one stopping them. And so in this case, who's the heavyweight champion here? Abram. What's Abram got to back him? 318 men. He doesn't have other kings. He doesn't have other nations. It's just him. And guess what? If you punch the bully, the bully's going to come back for you. He wants vengeance. He wants to get his title back. And so Abram, I believe, is being told by the Lord here, don't be afraid because he's afraid. Abram is not told things from the Lord because he's not thinking them. There's two examples of this in the New Testament. Number one is... Um, Paul. Paul was a man who had done many cases of faith. And we're going to find out that in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, uh, Paul gets to this place, and he's um, in Corinth. You guys ever read the book of 1 Corinthians? This is the place Paul wrote to. But in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says there, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, had recently come from Italy from his wife Priscilla. But if you go forward a little bit in the passage, it says there in verse 4 of chapter 18 that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath in Corinth and persuaded Jews and Greeks concerning Jesus. So verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by, compelled by the Spirit, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But when they opposed him, the Jews opposed Paul, and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean from now on. Instead of going to you Jews, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So this is a God-fearer. This was a Gentile who had seen the God of the Jews do miraculous things and was following his ways, but he didn't know about Jesus yet. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians 
hearing, believed, and were baptized. So Paul came up against a hard spot. He kept proclaiming. He kept teaching. He kept reasoning with the scriptures. And then many from the Jews, many from the Gentiles, and then the Corinthian town were hearing and believing in the gospel. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Because every time there's an offensive move in a battle, there's always defensive and offensive moves. So for instance, in trench warfare and in the, in the world wars, if you stuck your head out of the ground and start firing, what is the opposing uh, team going to do? The opposing army is going to see your gunfire. They're going to see the, the flame come out of the end of your barrel, and they're going to fire back at that fire. And so Paul is essentially sticking his head out of the trench. He's taking pot shots at the enemy, and the enemy is standing up going, uh, no, you don't. I'm going to shut you down. You're not going to take people from my earthly kingdom. Satan's in charge of this world. And so as he does that, the Apostle Paul starts taking flack, literal flack. He starts taking pot shots from the enemy. He starts getting discouraged in sharing the gospel. And what happens is in the midst of his fear, the Lord speaks to him in the night by a vision. Sound familiar? Same thing he's just done for Abram. Uh, God doesn't change. He says, do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So that's what he's doing. He's comforting Abram in the midst of his fears, worries, and doubts. It happens again in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. The disciples have been told to get in the boat, cross the sea, and what happens is a storm comes up. And Jesus being asleep in the boat, the disciples start to freak out. And they start waking up Jesus. Jesus, don't you know we're going to be, we're going we're gonna to crash. We're going to go into the water. And Jesus rises up and speaks comfort. And he says, peace, be still. Except he doesn't say it to the disciples because he knows it's pointless talk. He says it to the ocean because it's easier to shut the ocean down than calm the fears of the human heart sometimes. And so in the middle of that, what I want to point out is that many people who followed the Lord in the Bible we're afraid. So if you've ever found yourself, or if you're in one right now where you're afraid, guess what? <laughs> you're in good company. The giants, the heroes of the faith have been afraid. And here is Abram, the father of the faith. And God says to him, do not fear. And somebody told me this. I didn't check it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Just You can go check it on your own. But it's, somebody told me that the Bible has at least 365 times the phrase, do not be afraid. And I think that's no coincidence because there's 365 days in a year. And so that being said, um, Abram is currently afraid of his outward enemies, uh, perhaps the enemies that would retaliate from these other kingdoms. But then also um, he's afraid of his inward enemies, doubting. He's wrestling with what God has already promised him. God said, I'm going to do these things. And Abram, for the first time we see in the narrative, starts to question God. Not like Adam and Eve, not like Satan in the garden, but Abram saying, okay, you said these things, but how? Seeing as I've had no children. So what I love about this is that God's not above answering our questions. 
Sometimes he answers, sometimes he remains silent. But anyway, God wants us to ask questions. And his response is that he rebukes Abram's wrong idea, and then he repeats his promise. He says, no, it's not going to be the way you think. Because he goes, hey, look, I've got no descendants. I'm getting older. The only real heir I have in my house is my servant Eleazar from Damascus. Interestingly enough, I wonder if he gathered that servant when he was fighting the battle to get Lot back when they were in the north in Damascus. And God's going to say, I don't want the strength that comes from Damascus. I want my strength to be enough for you. And so he tells him in this passage here, he says, I am your shield. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. What's a shield used for? For protection, for deliverance. You can hide behind your shield, and then the fiery darts of the enemy cannot get you. But then he also says, I am your exceedingly great reward. In the midst of the battle, and we kind of ended on that last week, we pray for stuff, we pray for deliverance, we pray for whatever it might be, and God says, in the middle of your battle, I am your reward. And if you remember, in the last chapter, the king of Sodom said, hey, you can have all the plunder, just give me my people back. And Abram said, I will not have the rewards of the world. And then God here is confirming that and saying, I am your reward. I am what you need. And so Abram returns to believing God instead of fears and doubts. And I love this because here we have, towards the end of this six verses, um, he repeats the promise there, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then it says there in verse six that Abram's fear is essentially calmed. And he's, it says he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So verse seven, and before I go to the next slide, notice what I have there. It says, Fear and faith cannot live long together. You can have fear and you can have faith together, but one of them has to die in order for the other to live. So in order for faith to flourish, fear has to die. Fear, you lost your hold on me. We sang that this morning. Well, I'll raise a hallelujah in the middle of the mystery. Is a mystery something that can't be figured out? Or is it something that has to take searching to figure out? A mystery is something you have to do searching for. God's longing for us in the middle of the things that we experience from day to day to question, what's going on? It's a mystery to me, Lord. Will you reveal it to me? And in the middle of that, he's trying to produce faith in us, not in our circumstances, but in what he said he will do. And so we go on to verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. So he's already said that he's going to make him many descendants. Abram believes at this point, and then the Lord repeats the promise he already made. He's, he reminds him of his birthday. He, he doesn't remind him of the day he was born from his mother he reminds him of the, the new birth of his life. Here's where life started for you, Abram. He says there, I am the Lord who brought you out 
and you might, you might put it in here, I am the Lord who brought you out of the womb. Maybe a doctor would say that to a kid that he's seen his whole life. Hey, don't worry about this surgery I'm going to give you. I'm the one that pulled you out of the womb in the first place. That's what essentially God is saying to Abram here. Don't worry about this current battle. Remember, I'm the one that called you out of the world, called you to be separate, called to be, you to be different than the world. Ur of the Chaldeans was Babylon. That's, the, that's where the Tower of Babel was built. God called Abram out of the world, just like he's going to call the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, and, and if you look at Israel's history, that's what he keeps saying to Israel when they, when they start to backslide or start to doubt God's promises. He goes, hey, I'm the Lord. First and foremost, I'm the Lord. And secondly, I'm the one that called you out of Egypt. And if you read Exodus chapter 1 through 20, you see, wow, that wasn't an easy thing. That was a birthing process. He had to judge the world in order to get them to let his people go. So he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. He says, don't you remember who I am? You're looking around and seeing everybody else and who they are. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you here to give you this land as your inheritance. So the question is, or I guess the thought is, when struggling with what you don't know, and there's a lot of unknowns in our lives. E, by the way, there was a lot of unknowns before, before the pandemic. There was a lot of unknowns before the election. You had a lot of unknowns, except you didn't wrestle with them because you could control a lot of the other areas of your life. But now that control has been taken away in a lot of ways, and it's infuriating to you, you're trying to go back and go, wait a minute, what's going on? I, I, I'm, and the, in the me middle of the unknowns, we need to go back to what and really who we do know. He is the Lord. We do know that, right? And if you don't know that today, you need to make that the case. But number two, he brought you out of where you come from. God is the one that delivered you from your past life. And if you don't have a past life, then you've not been born again, and you need to be. But in the middle of that, we see he's the Lord. He's the one that brought you out of where you came from, and he brought you to where you are today. What is it that you're facing in your life right now that seems insurmountable? Do you think that you got there because of your own foolishness? You probably did. I did. But do you think that God's bigger than your foolishness or mistakes you might have made or circumstances that life threw at you? He has sovereignly placed you where you are today to give you life and to give you your inheritance. He put you there. And so with that being said, let's go on to verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit the land? So God says to him in verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. This sounds like some sort of creepy mixture of potions. You know, <laughs> you guys ever seen Princess Bride? 
and they've got Wesley, and they want to restore him to life. Some of you are like going to check out during this, but and and then there's this guy with this accent. He's like, yeah, well, you just get me this and that and the other, and they, they mix it in a cauldron, and they're doing witchcraft, and somehow they give him this thing that's coarse co- covered in chocolate, and they make him swallow it, and it's the key to life. He brings him back to, from the dead. He, he was only partially dead is what they said about Wesley. But anyway, mostly he's only mostly dead. And so with that being the case, they give him this little pill, and then it's basically bigger than he can swallow, and somehow it brings him back to life slowly. But this is not the case. God's not saying, I want to make a potion for you. He's not mixing up and doing incantations and witchcraft. What God's getting ready to do is cut covenant. And if you know anything about the culture in Abram's day, if you were going to make an agreement with people, you wouldn't sign up a contract and get a lawyer involved and pay him too much money. What you would do is you would apparently cut animals in half and stand between them and shake hands. And essentially what you were saying is, I agree to this. And the other person was saying, hey, me too. And, it, and then you'd shake hands. And if either one of you did not uphold your end of the bargain, guess what? You're dead meat. You, you got these animals cut literally in half, laying on each side. You make an agreement in between the animals. There's blood everywhere. There, and you, you say, if, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, then you're all within your rights to make me dead meat, just like these animals. And that's how they would make agreements. It, it, the agreement costs, right? An animal's worth money. It's, it's meals. You're essentially, in some ways, wasting them. You're making an agreement. So God says, do this. And Abram hears, let us cut covenant. Let us make an agreement. Let us sign a contract. But what is God saying to him? Well, what we're going to find out is God saying him, to him, I want to make a covenant to you. And I'm going to uphold it. But what Abram hears is, hey, let's make an agreement as if we're equals. And so Abram says, sounds awesome. This is how everybody makes agreements. Let's go to the drawing board. And so what we find here is that we, as we continue on, after he tells him what kind of animals to get, verse 10, then he brought all these to him. He cut them in two down the middle. He placed each side opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So what happens is if you cut an animal in half, apparently, and you lay it in a field, other animals smell it, and they come from miles to take care of it. They're like nature's street sweepers, except they're going to come in and they're going to devour it. And so Abram gets ready. to. He's waiting for God to show up. He's done his part. And all day, he takes his broom or whatever, his sword that he cut the animals in half with, and he wearies himself keeping these animals from getting eaten. But what's interesting is as God's told him to get these animals and prepare them, and as he's been driving these, these vultures away, verse 12, it says, when the sun was going down, so much later, after Abram's been sweeping these animals away all day, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly 
that your descendants will be strangers. And he starts to reveal to him the future. I find this interesting because God's going to make an agreement with Abram. And before he makes the agreement, remember Abram's question at the very beginning of this, was it to do with the future or was it who's going to be my heir? The immediate need, right? I want to know how my immediate need's going to be met, God. And God doesn't talk about the immediate need. Instead, he talks about the result of the immediate need being met and moving on to future things. Your descendants will be like this, and they're going to go here, and you're going to die at this age, and all these things. And in the meantime, all of the things that God reveals to him assume that that one thing he's worried about is like a no-brainer. He doesn't even address it. He doesn't even bring it up. As if to say, God is saying, I've already told you about that. Let's move on to the next step. And so in the middle of this, it says there, um, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then God begins to reveal things to Abram. So Abram shows up. He's at the table ready to sign the agreement. And before he can even sign the agreement or shake hands with God or whatever he thought was going to happen, it says that he falls asleep. He falls into a trance. And, and I believe he falls asleep for the very practical reason that all day he's been protecting the place of agreement. So Abram wearies himself waiting for God and preparing to make an agreement with God. And after working himself to exhaustion, he falls into a deep sleep. And notice when God shows up. As soon as Abram's too tired to try. After Abram runs out of steam, God shows up and gives Abram a revelation of the future that is certain. It's interesting because oftentimes in our doubts and our fears and our worries and all the things that we struggle with, how's God going to fulfill this? How God delays and he says nothing and it frustrates the bejeepers out of us. But what's interesting is that as we wait, God's producing patience in us. And patience builds character, Romans chapter 5. And character produces hope. And our hope will not be disappointed because it's not in the thing. It's in the thing creator. It's in God. And so with that being the case, I want to point you to John chapter 11. Another time when people were frustrated with God's timing. John chapter 11. You might remember a man by the name of Lazarus. We know him as the man that was raised from the dead. But these folks who knew Jesus could raise the dead or at least could heal those who were sick, they, they have lost a family member. And so Lazarus is known as the dead man, the relative that just passed. And in uh, John chapter 11, verse 1, it says a certain man was sick. So Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They didn't call out to him when he was dead. They called out to him when he was sick. So when Jesus heard that, he said that this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. 
What do you and I do before coronavirus? What do you and I do when we hear that somebody's sick? Well, when we were allowed to still, we would rush to their side and do what we could to help them. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, we're not allowed to do that anymore. And I think that that's one of the hardest things about the whole deal. But what I want to point out to you is that even if you're not able to go to somebody's side, God is able, whether they're sick or whether they're on their deathbed. And what's interesting is he loved them, so he did not go for two days. Because he loved them, he didn't go help them. Does that make sense to us? No, it's a mystery. And yet what we find out is he says this sickness is for the glory of God. How can sickness, wait a minute, I just thought had a thought. Do you think that the coronavirus could be for the glory of God? I don't feel it, but I do. And so in this case, this sickness was for the glory of God, and so God waited. And Abram, in the same way, waited and waited and waited for God to show up to cut covenant with him. And when he was totally exhausted from waiting and keeping the buzzards away, God shows up and starts to reveal things to him that would comfort him. Prophecy is not meant so that we can try to figure out what the news says. Prophecy is meant to comfort those who read it so that they can see that God's already planned the future and it will come to pass. Jesus will come back. He's not forgot us. And in this case, Abram needed a vision past his circumstances. And so God says there in verse 13, it says that he said to Abram in this vision, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Not the most comforting thing I've ever heard. Oh, too far. Nope, not too far. I'm probably doing double duty back there. Abram's descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Abram knew that before he had a child. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out. Not only will they come out, but they'll have great possessions. The exodus and plagues and the Egyptians letting the people go, but also sending them out with all their stuff was foretold before Abram had any descendants. Verse 15, Now as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here to this land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So Abram's peaceful passing and his descendants returned to the land of promise was foretold. Not only was it foretold, but when? Four generations. So look at Acts chapter 7 with me for just a moment. Because there was a disciple of Jesus in the New Testament by the name of Stephen, who addressed the Sanhedrin and was stoned to death for his testimony. But he spoke about... Uh, Abram, in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, God said. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And so again, I want to point out that God has the future in his hands. And Corey Tin Boom said this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We don't know our future, but we know our God, and we can entrust our future to it. There's something playing. Is that up here or downstairs? Okay, sorry. So verse 17 as we close. So it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I've given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and of course I have to throw in the termites, and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So God makes the covenant. He waits till Abram's exhausted. Then he shows up, reveals the future, and then he walks through and makes the covenant by himself. Abram doesn't have to do anything. This is the covenant that he makes with them before the Mosaic covenant. Now, what's interesting is that God's presence is manifested as a torch that's burning. Think about it like this. God calls himself a consuming fire. Moses will see him in the burning bush. But then Moses will also see him on Mount Sinai with lightning, thundering, and smoke. And so this oven producing smoke and then this torch producing flame. It's just God's manifesting his presence. And if you remember um, in the Exodus, as they're going through the wilderness, God presents himself. He leads them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day to shield them from the desert heat. Then also he reveals himself to Elijah. He consumes the offering there on Mount Carmel as a flame of fire. And then also a, uh, another time is when in 1 Kings chapter 8, they're dedicating the temple and the temple, they ask God to fill the temple with his presence. And when he does, it is in so much smoke that everybody has to exit the building. God's presence is so very thick. So this is God's glory being revealed to Abram here. And this is how the agreement is made. God walks between these animals. Interestingly enough, 
you think about the blood that was shed by these animals, if this covenant isn't fulfilled, then I will give myself to make it right. And so God is going to be the one that fulfills this covenant in every possible way. But also I want to point out that God's covenant is grace only. Abraham's works are not needed for God's promises to be fulfilled. Our works in tandem with God do not save us. They are only evidence that we, in fact, trust God. But then the Lord's covenant includes three things. Who gets the land? So the, the people getting ready to purchase the land. Uh, the description is of the border, which we would call a survey, right? And then the current owners or the previous owners, the Amorites and all the Ites um, and the Rephaim and all those people. And so essentially this is a covenant, but it's also a title to the land. God says, this was my land in the first place. I created it, and I'm choosing to give it to you. I'm going to title it to you. And so all that to say, as we look at the end here, and I've got that picture I used several weeks ago of what it might look like for these animals to be cut in half and drained of their blood. And this is the place where the covenant would be made. And then the Lord's presence going between uh, the dead um, carcasses. And so... <laughs> Abram offered what was in his hand. He had the animals. Abram brought death to the table. By the way, when we make covenant with God or God makes covenant with us, the only thing that we bring to the agreement table is death and blood. We're, we're a bride of blood to him. Think about it like Cain and Abel. Uh, the blood that fell into the ground after Abel was murdered by Cain cried out to the Lord for justice. And then God himself passed through death to make the covenant. So only God can take death and blood and even Abram's weariness in the work and then step into the situation himself and fulfill promises to his people and ultimately save them. Because through this people, again, he's going to bring the Savior of the world. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the covenant that you made with Abram. And before Abram was, you were. You call into light the things that are not already existent. And I thank you for Abram who received the promise, who believed the promise, and the promise was accounted to him as righteousness. And so, Lord Jesus, um, in the middle of the, the waiting, in the, in the middle of the mystery, I look at this passage and I read it and I read about how they made agreements and it's a mystery to me, but in the middle of the mystery, I'm going to confess to you that I believe that what you say is true, that our salvation is by grace through faith, and it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have nothing to boast about except that we brought to the table the death that ultimately killed you, and yet you took our bruising, you took our beating, you took our death upon yourself in order to give us life in return. And so I thank you for our salvation that was purchased. I thank you for our inheritance that goes back as far as Abram and Noah and Adam. And I thank you for the God of the covenant promises who has never failed to make and to keep a promise. And Lord Jesus, we confess to you that in the middle of not knowing how you're going to do it, 
We know that you can and we know that you will. And so, Father, help us to, to believe, to hear, and to anchor our hope in you, the promise maker, the promise keeper. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you for this word from your scriptures. We pray for all of those who are sick right now, that in the middle of you waiting on their healing, just like Lazarus, Lord, that you would reveal your glory to your people as they await your deliverance. Father, we love you. We need you. We pray, Father, that you'd be glorified in all that we do this week and ultimately in all that you have promised and will do this week. And when we're wearied, we know your glory is still going to be shining, so we just look forward to seeing how you're going to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.